Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Optive Theology Podcast. My name is Andy Schmidt. I'm here with Pastor Mike Beresford, which feels different to say because I usually say Pastor Nick Gibson. I almost just said that <laughs> in my head. But um, so today we're doing a testimony podcast. We haven't done one of these in a couple of months, and people have really enjoyed them. Right, we just sit down for an hour, sometimes two hours, and I ask people about their testimony, what, how they became a Christian, and then uh, what has their life been like since they've become a Christian. And so, Mike, you've, you're a head pastor, or not head pastor, you're a senior, no, not a senior pastor. What am I thinking? I'm thinking of Nick. I don't know why I'm thinking of Nick. You're a associate pastor, correct? Yeah, associate pastor. Associate pastor. executive pastor. Right. At, uh, at High Point Church, you've worked for the Billy Graham Foundation. You've done a lot of different stuff in your life. And so... We're just going to discuss kind of, you can kind of start um, at the point of I was born and go to the point <laughs> of you're born again and then go from there till till now. And I might interrupt here or there and ask a clarifying question. But um, yeah, what do you want to just kick us off with? Sure. With your it's life? good to be with you, Andy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was born at a very young age under a... <laughs> Close to my mother mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. in a Christian home, grandfather was a pastor, mm -hmm. um, a very interesting genealogical fact. My dad did one of the genealogies, you know, study of life, family lifelines a few years ago. And he discovered that from about the 16th century on our family, the Beresford name, um, one hailed from Lord Admiral Beresford in England, wow. who was uh, Lord of the English Seas until he was out of sight of England. And they said he was a fine pirate, <laughs> but uh, mm -hmm. he was either a sea captain mm -hmm. or uh, which turned into a naval officer mm -hmm. or clergy. Which is like a significant thing because the English had the greatest Navy in the world yeah, for, they for did. a long, long time. Yeah. And so... Uh, we didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, his dad was a na U.S. naval uh, destroyer captain. Wow. And huh. uh, my dad would have been in the Navy, but he was too young when he, yeah. when his mom kicked him out of the house and said, you're a man, you need to go get a job. Yeah. Um, and his dad was at sea all the time. Mm -hmm. And so he went to the uh, Navy recruiting office and said he was 17. They said, no, you not old enough. So he went next door to the air force and said he was 18 and they took him in and <laughs> he had a, a, a full long life in the air force. Wow. And, um, I ended up clergy wow. and my brother started out that way too. Um, my mom, um, I actually hired her when I was at Eastside Foursquare to be a, a pastor and children's pastor. And she ended up over small groups and she was a pastor there wow. for 30 years. And that's in that Seattle wasn't in area. Madison, I was in Seattle. Yeah. Okay. So born into a very strong Christian family. Mm -hmm. And um, we spent a lot of our summers up on my grandpa's. Mm -hmm. And so I remember very fondly going to VBS and various things mm -hmm. in my grandpa's church, yeah. a small church, logging town in north, yeah. um, northwest Washington. Mm -hmm. And... I still remember the VBS where I, in memory anyway, made my first confession. I'd um, recognition that yeah. very capable of doing wrong yeah. and um, yeah. going forward to receive Jesus. Mm -hmm. And 
then I also remember, and I remember growing up and church was a very common thing for us. It was mm-hmm. our primary social activity. Yeah. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Yeah. Um, dad went to choir practice. I mean, church was what we did and that's mm-hmm. where our friends were. And then... Um, Maybe to clarify for mm-hmm. people my age, VBS, I think stands vacation for... Vacation Bible School. Which always was weird to me because vacation and school just never went together <laughs> in my head. So I went to it vacation. It was a Bible school during vacation, <laughs> yeah. so it was always during the summer. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, and then um, I don't know what precipitated the event, mm-hmm. but I was nine years old mm-hmm. and I had a much better understanding of... Mm-hmm. I could sin and mm-hmm. I could choose to do that. Mm-hmm. And I remember giving my life to Christ more. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think just because I understood more, I gave more. And then um, again, when I was 13. Mm-hmm. And then um, strong Christian kid in high school. Um, I went to a, a great youth group. We had about 100 high school kids in the youth group. Wow. 120 or so, something like that. And I was always the lead. Everybody expected that I would um, become a pastor because I was the lead there and we were from a ministry family. Yeah. Last thing I wanted to do was ever become a pastor. Yeah. And I wanted to be a pediatrician. Hmm. I had a full ride to University of Washington in architecture. Hmm. I didn't take... Um, you you had a full ride for architecture. Were you just not interested in architecture? Mm-hmm. Or you were design. Yeah, oh. I was interested, but I wanted to be a pediatrician. I right. wanted to make money, honestly. Yeah. yeah, totally. And we didn't raise. We weren't a poor family, but we weren't a wealthy family. Yeah. And uh, the East Side, what was called the East Side, Bellevue and Kirkland, where I grew up, mm-hmm. very affluent, mm-hmm. and. Um, we had a lot of people in the church that were in medicine and such and, um, had good lives, were good Christians, very generous. And I wanted to follow that road. And yet there was a assembly of God school, Bible school in Kirkland called Northwest. Uh, now it's Northwest university that, uh, our church was kind of the flagship church for most of the Mm -hmm. professors went there. Mm-hmm. Um, so everybody thought I would go there mm-hmm. and kind of pressured and it kind of made me mad because yeah. I didn't want to go where people told me to go. Yeah. I wanted I to go where to <laughs> I wanted to go where I wanted to go. Yeah. And so, um, yeah. I thought, well, I got to get my AA classes out of the way anyway. Right. And even though it was more expensive than the UW mm-hmm. or University of Washington, yeah. um, I went ahead and applied and kind of to keep peace, but also my friends were going to go there. I knew the professors. It was convenient. It was in my hometown. Yeah. And then I got an invitation to go to Alaska Hmm. with um, a contractor who was building a support base for Universal Seafoods. Okay. And so we went up there with uh, eight Christian guys. I ended up to be the the lead. Mm Mm-hmm. We were all fresh out of high school. They mm-hmm. taught us a trade. Mm-hmm. We built three houses, uh, four piers, uh, apartment building. So was that a, a mission trip, or was it? Did you get paid for no, that? Or okay. we worked six tens. Okay. Um, Nineteen seventy-five. They paid us ten dollars an hour plus our flights up and back in room and board. Wow. And so there was no place to spend your money. Right. So um, worked up there. 
and I hurt my knee in June. I was supposed to come home in, so I've been up there a whole year, supposed to come home in, uh, at the end of July. Mm -hmm. And I was all set to go to Northwest and I'm thinking, I'm not going to spend my life pleasing people. Right. I really don't want to go become a pastor. I felt no desire to do that. Right. I was a leader. I was a Christian, but still wanted to just make money. Mm -hmm. And so I applied to the University of Washington, mm -hmm. was accepted, mm -hmm. and um, wrote a letter to Northwest and withdrew. Mm -hmm. Unbeknownst to me, the um, register... Uh, in the registrar's office, the lady that worked there was Mrs. Butterfield. Mm -hmm. And she had been uh, a prayer partner of my grandmother's for 44 years. And her husband was a pastor. Mm -hmm. And uh, and so I, I got home and went over to the university mm -hmm. mid-August to pick up my books and get all that squared away. Mm -hmm. Paid for first year because I had the money I made in Alaska right. and uh, bought a car, put money down on a ski boat. Wow. And I was headed home and uh, one of the exits headed home went down to Northwest College. Mm -hmm. And I knew it was freshman orientation day. And so I would have a lot of friends down there. So mm -hmm. I went down in my new car and parked illegally on the lawn and went in to say hi to people. Mm -hmm. And Mrs. Butterfield is standing there with some um, file folders in her hand. Mm -hmm. She said, hello, Michael. I said, hello, Mrs. Butterfield. I knew who she was from mm -hmm. various occasions. And um, she says, what are you doing? I said, well, I just came to see some friends. I just came back from the university and mm -hmm. took care of getting my books and registration. She goes, well, these are for you. And I said, what's that? She goes, it's your class schedule. Your books have been pulled. They're in the book office or the bookstore for you. And I said, well, you work in the register's office. You know I'm not going here. Mm -hmm. She goes, oh, I got that. I tore it up and threw it in the garbage because that's not what God has for you. Mm -hmm. And the hair on the back of my neck stood up. Mm -hmm. And I took the folders, turned around, got back in my car, and drove the 13 minutes to our house. I don't think I breathed in those 13 yeah. minutes. I'm sure I did. But I walked in the door. Because you were, at this point, you're accepted at University of Washington. Yep. And you're, you're, you're not withdrawing enrolled. from this. So you're either going to just go broke going to both colleges or something. I mean, that's like that would make me nervous. I'd be yeah. like, well, I don't know what to do now. So I, I go in, and in our house, you walked in the front door, and the living room was to the right, and you go straight through to the kitchen, mm -hmm. and the sink was against the back wall. Yeah. My mom is standing at the sink washing something, mm -hmm. and she turned around to see who came in the house, because mm -hmm. our house was a revolving door usually. Mm -hmm. And she saw me, and she turned and dropped whatever it was, and it broke. I remember it breaking on the floor. It was glass. And she just was like, white as a ghost. And she goes, what's wrong? And I said, I'm going to be a pastor. Mm. And she began to cry mm. just, and it wasn't this terrible cry. It was a <laughs> joyful cry. Yeah. And I'm like, why are you crying? And she said, God promised me that when you were three, mm. but I couldn't say anything because it had to be your decision. Mm. 
Yeah. Wow. And it was very mixed in my head at that point. Yeah. I remember turning around. I drove back to the University of Washington, put my books, turned my books in, mm -hmm. withdrew. Mm -hmm. And um, I hadn't picked up the boat. I went and got my money back on the <laughs> boat. And it was just a down payment. Kept the car and uh, went to Northwest College mm -hmm. and did a four-year degree in um, Bible literature and yeah. uh, education. And became a children's pastor. Right. And so instead of a pediatrician, I became a, a spiritual one. Right. And yeah. it was, um, and I never looked back. I had friends that were pastors, but I kind of felt sorry for them. Mm -hmm. And just didn't want to be that person that yeah. Yeah. at the time in my life, I felt was always on call and mm -hmm. and uh, not always appreciated. And, right, right. And sought to be the job it was because I watched my grandfather. Right. And, and so it was... Uh, mm -hmm. When I graduated, my my um, the person that was um, my school counselor or whatever you wanted to call it those days, um, my junior year became the lead pastor of my home church. Hmm. But before he left, he said, "When you graduate, I want you to come on staff, hmm. and but I don't want you to tell anybody yet. Um, right. You can announce it midway through your senior year." And I did, and I went on staff the day, two days after I graduated and was a children's pastor. Wow. Yeah. So that's kind of how I got into ministry and how I came to Christ. And, you know, I'm, I'm very privileged because I've got a legacy of Christians. Right. And, and they were good Christians. Mm -hmm. and they weren't caught up in too many of the crazy things mm -hmm. or, um, you know, Jesus, prayer, working with the Holy Spirit, understanding those things were just an active part of who I was and mm -hmm. my friend groups. Um, it was, I had a great, great childhood, great mm -hmm. upbringing right. and have never not known being a part of the church. Right. It's, I think it's good. I mean, it's interesting. I think parents can go either way in, 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 uh, pressuring their kids to do what they think that they should do. Like yeah. it sounded like your mom were, did want you to become a pastor, but she was like, this needs to be something that you come, become convicted of and you do as uh, yeah. for yourself. And I think that's not a story that I often hear for pe from people my age. It's like some parents have their kids lives planned <laughs> from like before they're even born, like they're, here's what you're going to do. And it's, and it's, I think it's actually a rare thing to have a parent who, who, is more focused on the a, a child coming to the conclusions themselves and those parents actually forcing that onto them. So that's like, you know, we were always tagged along. Yeah. Um, but every base that dad was stationed at in the air force, they don't change you as often as army or Navy. And, mm -hmm. and it felt like dad just had a normal job most mm -hmm. of the time. Um, but every air base that we were at, mom and dad were very active in the chapel program. Mm -hmm. Mom usually ran Sunday morning, Sunday school. Mm -hmm. Um, so we just kind of tagged along and did the right. menial tasks that need to be done. It yeah. was just what we did. Yeah. And church was normal. Right. Right. And I really didn't appreciate, I enjoyed it, but I didn't appreciate what it gave me until I had kids, mm -hmm. you know, and saw the, right. Right. the consistency mm -hmm. that it brought life, the quality mm -hmm. of friends that my parents had. Yeah. And I had, for the most part, mm -hmm. 
our, our house was a, a joyful one. Mm-hmm. Our house was also the revolving door in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just watched my parents be Christians. Mm-hmm. Um, like if somebody in the cul-de-sac said their mom was sick, mm-hmm. our dinner went out the door. Right. We got sandwiches that night, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know, because yeah. they got our dinner Yeah, because mom wasn't feeling well enough to fix theirs. Right. And it was just right. things like right. that, that right. were just n- normal. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember I went on a, a missions trip a couple of years ago and well, you've been all over the country and we can, we can talk about that in a little bit, but we, but I remember thinking, okay, so I, I'm from Madison and we went to South Carolina or North Carolina, one of the Carolinas. And we were out and we would like talk to people. And whenever you would meet another Christian, it was like, what was really cool about it was that it felt like you already knew the person a little bit, even yeah. though you'd never met them before, but right. they're another Christian. You share the same values, you share the same beliefs. And then, and so that like family community, even, even if you don't stay in the same church for, you know, 50 years, if you go to two or three churches or you move to a different city, you like, sometimes it just feels like you're, you didn't even move or you didn't even go somewhere else. It, these people are all, we're all kind of believing the same thing. Yeah. That common set of values yeah. and beliefs goes so far in life. Right. Right. Which is becoming rare and rare even among Christians. But, but it was, I, that, that was one shocking thing to me. I was like, what? I just had a two hour conversation with people I never met before. And I'm probably will never talk to them again, but I feel like I know who they are and yeah. they know who I am. And it's because we could skip all of the pleasantries in some ways. Like we, we knew where we stood on things. So let's talk about, let's talk yeah, about what really matters. familiarity. Yeah. Right. So you, you became a uh, children's pastor at this church and how long did you stay there? And what was that like? So at that point in my life, um, I had always been school president, class president, mm-hmm. um, all through high school and college and, uh, or vice president, mm-hmm. but always, always in a leadership position. And I was good and I was arrogant mm-hmm. and, and we had about 600 kids in the, in the children's ministry. Mm-hmm. And wow. how big of a church was this? Uh, about 1400 adults. Wow. Yeah. And created a machine. Yeah. I mean, people came in to look at our ministry. The problem was, and it surfaced in a way that was shocking to me. Um, a guy who knew me from ninth grade was the church softball coach, Mm -hmm. ended up to be one of my professors in college, Dr. Mm -hmm. Leroy Johnson Mm -hmm. pulled me aside one day. We were in three services and we're standing right outside the men's bathroom door and he said, MB, he had called me that since I was in ninth grade. Mm-hmm. He said, uh, if you love people, you'd be an amazing pastor. Mm-hmm. I didn't hear it as Leroy speaking to me. Mm-hmm. I'm 23 years old. Mm-hmm. I heard it as God speaking to me. Mm-hmm. And I remember hitting the bathroom door, finding an empty stall and kneeling in front of the porcelain throne, crying my eyes out because I knew it to be true. Mm-hmm. And that was the beginning of so three. That just like you, tre- how you treated people? Like, where did that come from? Where you, you were just arrogant. You thought you knew everything. Oh, and you just didn't treat people with any respect or how. If you were 10 minutes late to an appointment, you could reschedule because I was busy. Yeah. Okay. Um, I used people 
to get the job done. Mm -hmm. Not because I recognized, well, I recognized their gift and they could get it done for me. Yeah. But I didn't get it. I didn't do it. I didn't create the opportunity so they could experience their gift. Right. Right. Um, This is, this is interesting. I, I've personally struggled with this big time, especially because when, when you're doing ministry, there's a lot of similarities between business, the business world and ministry. There's a lot of similarities. I mean, the organizations and structures and money coming in and out in certain ways, but there's like, I I have said in this podcast before that I, I was reading through the book, uh, Atlas shrugged by Ayn Rand. And I found myself just being like, this is, this book is totally correct. Everything's right about this. Like everybody is a means to an end. And then this is how economics works. And we're all just production machines and we use each other. And, and it just, it was like really messed up how quickly it like clicked with me. And then I, and then I talked to Nick about it and he was like, yeah, well, Ayn Rand also thought that like selfishness was a virtue and she like cheated on her husband <laughs> and she was a terrible person yeah. because she didn't have a good idea of what it meant. To, she didn't know what human beings were. Right. They aren't just a means to an end. They aren't just uh, a piece of production on uh, an assembly line. Like there's value to them. And especially in the church, people who are volunteering their time and are taking time out of their week to come and they're not getting paid anything for this. It's like, that that seems that needs to be on the forefront of the minds of, of the leaders at the church it should. you know because they don't have to do that you know and then yeah. you got to do it all on your own yeah but yeah it's interesting and you know that was the beginning of three very painful years mm-hmm. and god broke me mm-hmm. uh to the point where i stopped wearing a watch mm-hmm. that was the days before cell phones so i couldn't look at it <coughs> and and i became a much softer person that still loved to get things done. Mm-hmm. I mean, as a kid's pastor, you know, we ran seven camps every summer out of nine weeks. Wow. Um, we worked hard mm-hmm. and probably to the detriment of us, but still also, my wife also grew up in a pastor's home and in a small church and you just do what you got to do. Right. Right. And, and we loved every minute of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've always struggled with that. Yeah. Uh, I remember when we left Billy Graham and I ended up in the backside of the mountains in Glenwood Springs area. And I got this big chart and I just had this picture of the church and after oh, about three months after I'd been there and I wrote this whole chart out, this ministry chart with extended ministries and various things in a church of about 120 people. I put everybody's names in spaces. 120 on staff? No. Or, or just in the Total. church? Okay, gotcha. And, and I got done and I looked at it and I just had this horrid, sick feeling in my gut like I wanted to throw up. And it was as if this voice said to me, you did it again. Mm. I remember taking that down and burning it. Mm. And I wrote the same chart on a big piece of paper, but I didn't put anybody's name in it this time. Because mm. I could see this organizational mm-hmm. chart and yeah, what it's right. going to look like. 18 months later, I'm looking at it. Every box was filled in. And I realized that they were the same names that I had put there. But this time, those people had come to me and yeah. said, I want to do this. Right. And, and in that moment, I understood that, yeah, while God had given me the giftings of leadership, mm-hmm. they weren't mine. Right. 
they were his. Right. Yeah. That's, and yeah, that's good. I was to respect that. Right. And I was to orchestrate the opportunity, not them. It sounds just like your mom. I mean, <laughs> with you, that's kind of what it sounds like. Like she, she had the organizational chart in her head of as uh, uh, like, here's what Mike's going to do. He's going to be a pastor, but she waited for you to write your name into that but instead of herself. And yeah. And along the way, just modeled <clears throat> yeah. in, in a wonderful way. My parents did model and we were around people who modeled ministry mm -hmm. to where it was just what her family did. Right. So you're, so you were kid children's pastor for how long? And did you say was there seven years, seven years. Okay. And, um, then I went to be an executive pastor in California and there was a lead pastor change and we went back up to the Northwest mm -hmm. and, um, and what, what time frame is this? Like what, uh, you know, Oh gosh, that would have been early from uh, 80, see, 74, 79. He's talking about the 1670s and the 80s. It had been the, the early to mid 80s. Yeah. And then I think it was in 90, 91, we moved back up to Seattle area mm -hmm. and uh, went to a, a four square church north of mm -hmm. Seattle, again, as executive pastor and restructured it and it was a good church and and the Holy Spirit did something very unexpected and unusual. Mm -hmm. um, the problem being was that the senior pastor at the time had no theological training. Mm -hmm. He was a very charismatic mm -hmm. person. He was a pro football player with wow. Joe Namath and the Jets. Nice. Um, and we went through a 40 day period where people just without anything being announced showed up at church one night, about 600 of them. Wow. In about a 350 member church. Wow. Um, and this worship and prayer broke out hmm. and that happened every night spontaneously for 40 days. Wow. We canceled everything except Sunday morning. And there were healings, there were salvations, there was all kinds of stuff. And then it stopped. Nobody showed up. <laughs> in just the middle of the week, we're all there and no Ready people. Yeah. And he was like, well, you know, did we sin? What, what, what happened? What, is there sin in the camp? Yeah. And, and it really felt like I, I had a understanding from God that I just said no. God has empowered us. He's cleansed us. He's healed us. Yeah. And it's a time of going out and doing something. Right. And in that Sunday, he said that and he, and he, he did something that he, he shouldn't have done. He announced me as a champion of the faith and we're going to do this. And Mike's right. And then he got thinking about it during the week. And the next Saturday, he showed up at our house very angry. And he said, I never want to see you again. I think you're the reason that it stopped. Um, you're a tool of the devil. Hmm. And the next morning in church, he denounced me. Wow. And, in a span of a week. I mean, yeah. one week he loves you and then the next week. He... Yeah. Wow. And half the church got up and walked out. Wow. Half the board members left and all but one of his staff left. And they, a lot of people came to our house during the last half. They should have been in church. 
and said, will you start a church? And they said, no, I'm not called to start a church. Uh, I'm hurt. You don't want to hurt pastors starting a church. Right. Yeah. And I had enough building skills that I knew I could take care of the family. Mm-hmm. And um, it was devastating. Right. And a couple of weeks later, I was sitting in the basement at my desk and the Bible opened and, and Jocelyn, our oldest, was, I don't know, maybe 11 years old. Mm-hmm. And she walks in. She was maybe older than that. She was in middle school, so 13. And she just said, Dad, is God ever not taking care of us? Mm-hmm. And she says, shape up <laughs> and walks out mm-hmm. and and like no god has taken care of us right and i had enough relationships up and down the west coast from being the kids pastor and, and traveling some and speaking that honestly i should have been able to get a job in a couple months right i couldn't get a return phone call huh. and three, four months into it, I'm like, oh, maybe I guess I'm done in ministry. I didn't want to be done in ministry. Right. And that went on for a year. Did you ever believe, uh, did you ever start to think like, maybe that guy was right? Like, maybe I am a tool of the devil or was that, or was that no. you were kind of just like, okay, I, I don't believe that, but I also don't know what God's doing right now. I felt fully confident that that was right because yeah. the church did poorly. Yeah. Um, and the Christians that left were really strong Christians. Yeah. They were the yeah, leadership totally. of the church. Yeah. And I made more money that year than I'd ever made really? just doing carpentry work and oh, working for myself and doing cool. some late remodels and things. And uh, a year later, almost to the day, it was to the week, mm-hmm. um, his secretary called me hmm. and said, uh, can you come into the office? He wants, pastor wants to talk to you. Hmm. I'm thinking... I don't really want to talk to him, but okay. (laughs) So I went in and he apologized. And he said, I went to the district officials. They said, you had been there two or three days after this all happened. You didn't badmouth me. You told them what happened, where you were at. Mm -hmm. And um, he said, I read the account and I have to agree with it. And... I'm sorry. Hmm. He never did apologize publicly. But two weeks later, I had a pastor job, senior pastor job in Missouri, hmm. and we were moving. And yeah. two weeks after that, we're moved. Right. right. And um, and a whole different experience opened up. Yeah. And, and I got really angry with God hmm. because I felt like, he wasted a year of my life hmm. and I really felt chastised on that one too. Uh, it's tough to argue with God and be right. Right. Um, <laughs> really felt what I felt like was it, it, God just let me know in no uncertain terms that he has used a lot of other people in my life. Hmm. And this time he used me in his life. Right. And that he needed to work through that and I needed to be present for that apology to happen. Yeah. And then God released me. Right. And life kept going. Right. But I ended up at a church in Rolla, Missouri, the vineyard church. 
Yeah, it used to be a church for about 400, and it had just blown apart. They had a seismic split. Hmm. There were about 30 people left. Wow. And um, Estel's brother is uh, was part of the Vineyard National Board. Wow. It told us about it and that they wanted to build a presence in the Midwest and that that had been a strong church. And they'd like yeah. to keep it in a university town. So I went there and with the full intention that it was, I wasn't going to a little town. I don't like little towns. Never lived in a little town. Never yeah. wanted to live in a little town. Yeah. Didn't want a little church. Yeah. And I saw how hard my grandpa worked. And yeah. that just was not a direction I wanted to go. Right. Really didn't want to go to the Midwest. Yeah. Um, especially the Southern Midwest. Yeah. And, yeah. but it was obvious that God called us there. So then I find out this church is poorly versed in scripture, highly uh, experiential. And hmm. I mean, and they went to Holy Spirit conferences every Friday and Saturday somewhere. <laughs> and I got mad at God again in the second time in two weeks and said, okay, you made a mistake here. Um, yeah. I am not these people and these people aren't me. Right. Um, huh. And, and again, I felt just a very strong impression that that's why you're there. Mm -hmm. So I think all the people at that point thought I was a Presbyterian because yeah. the, I get up on Sunday morning, the second Sunday I'm there, mm -hmm. something you should never do as a new pastor. And I said, um, here's what's going to happen. We're going to stop chasing the Holy Spirit because he's present. We're going to learn what truth is. Mm -hmm. We're going to learn what the gospel is. We're going to learn mm -hmm. what salvation is. Mm -hmm. And we're going to start to act like Christians, mm -hmm. not thrill seekers. Mm -hmm. And I said, there will no longer be any manifestations of the spirit until God chooses, not because we chase it. Mm -hmm. And... There were a few people that left, which left us about 18 people. Yeah. <laughs> and I just began to preach through John and Ephesians and what mm -hmm. the church is, what the gospel was, mm -hmm. uh, what it meant to be full of the spirit and live a ordinary, naturally supernatural life. Yeah. And how Jesus walked through the uh, gospels. Mm -hmm. You know, often that phrase and the spirit was upon him mm -hmm. or filled of the Holy Spirit or some indicator that uh, the Holy Spirit was active in his life. Yeah. Illustrating that he's active in our life and mm -hmm. we're to do godly things here on earth. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, that year we saw 165 adults come to Christ wow. and baptized them. Wow. And then... And it I'm broke sure loose the again. Grew. Yeah. Yeah. So now we're about 250 people. Okay. You know, 12, 14 months later. And on one Sunday, um, Holy Spirit showed up. Mm -hmm. And we had a season of healings. We had um but it was it was normal. Mm -hmm. It wasn't weird. And at the same time, we had um, one of the, the pastors across town, Chuck, over at the Assembly of God Church, uh, we'd become friends. And he, he said, listen, he said, 
two years ago, I wrote a letter to the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association asking if, he said they have a division for smaller crusades and they have two or three evangelists that hmm. preach those. Billy doesn't. And I just got a letter back and they would like to come in and, and uh, talk to us. Hmm. He said, we're all small. You're from Seattle. You've done bigger events, bigger churches. Will you lead that? Hmm. I said, this isn't my town. I'm here for a short period of time, likely, and don't really want to be here. Mm -hmm. And so I'll work with you. Mm -hmm. And so a um, guy from Billy Graham shows up. We talked and we ended up hosting a, a small crusade. Mm -hmm. well, the town I was in, Rolla was the uh, University of Rolla was there. And it's a very unique college. It's number two to MIT in, in a number of categories. Mm -hmm. And mostly international students, the grad school, they got 1,000 undergrad and 6,000 grad school at the time. It was well, just an upside down school yeah, in a lot of ways. Yeah, Chinese and Turkish for some reason. Yeah, um, And we had um, 10 to 11,000 and we averaged 9,000 a night for three nights. Wow. And during the time I became very good friends with the uh, crusade director. Mm-hmm. And he's over at our house a lot. And so I asked him if he wanted to go to lunch. This is the week before the crusade was going to happen. He said, sure. So we set a date and we get to this restaurant. And we both start talking at the same time, asking the very same thing. Mm -hmm. I was asking, how do you get on staff with BG? Mm -hmm. And he was asking, do you want to come on staff at BG? Yeah. And we laughed and um, did the crusade. And 10 days later, I was hired by Billy Graham. Wow to move to Minneapolis oh. and start on the crusade team. Mm -hmm. Well, there was a project that Graham was doing called Amsterdam 2000. They had done Amsterdam 83 and 86, and then nothing happened for a long time. And Amsterdam 2000 was kind of, um, Billy wanted to once again um, reach out to the vocational evangelists in the world. But this one was focused on Sub-Saharan Africa. Mm -hmm. So there was an, it was in Amsterdam at the Rice Center, which is the largest uh, conference center in the world. And um, about 10,000 African pastors and evangelists, and then another 5,000 from the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And so they had a cost overrun. It was supposed to be a $24 million project. And... All of a sudden, project, project costs were going to run around 30. Yeah. And so Which there was a hiring freeze sometimes, you know? the week that we moved to Minneapolis. Yeah. So I get to Minneapolis and I don't have a job. Yeah. But while we're driving to Minneapolis, Estel was hired by Billy Graham. Really? And, yeah. As an admin for the senior vice president of communications. Wow. So we get there. And so she goes to work and I don't. And. Uh, wow. She had met one of the other VPs and told me to come in for an interview. So I went in for an interview, not knowing for what. Right. I just needed a job yeah. at that point. Yeah. And um, so I ended up meeting with the president of, mm -hmm. of Billy Graham. And he was a... Uh, Who was not Billy Graham. No. No. Um, he was kind of a, a hard-nosed business guy. A strong Christian, but hard-nosed business guy. Yeah. And it really turned and done a good job with the organization. Mm -hmm. And it's seven o'clock in the evening, walk into his office and he sits there and looks at me for like 45 seconds, seemed like five minutes. Yeah. And he asked me one question. 
He said, why should I hire you? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> right to it. Yeah. And so I told him, yes, I'm a hard worker. I love mm-hmm. the Lord. This is what I know about scripture. So I know about the Bible. These are the people I've led to Christ and how mm-hmm. I've done it. Um, I value um, gifts in others. Mm-hmm. And he was like, okay. And I wanted to say, okay, what? Yeah, right. And then he asked what I like to do. So we talked right. about various hobbies and things. And he told yeah. me about what he likes to do. And <laughs> he goes, well, it's been a pleasure to talking to you after about 35 minutes. And we go out and I go home. With And you don't have any real clear answer. No idea. Gosh, that would drive me crazy. So <laughs> a certain VP that Estelle had met calls me and he says, uh, can you come into work tomorrow? I said, yeah. Yeah. Did I get hired? Yeah. <laughs> he goes, yeah. And so I went on the Amsterdam 2000 team. Really? And worked, we worked for a year. So that was a second year of organization for this event. What was your position? My called? role was, yeah. I was the manager over three things. Um, all the exhibitors I had 120 exhibitors from around the world mm-hmm. that had books, different things about sure. evangelism. Yeah. And then, um, we had uh, worldwide pictures was our movie division of Billy mm-hmm. Graham. And so we had goodness, I don't know, 30 or 40 films in wow. probably 20 languages. Yeah. And so every afternoon I showed a series of evangelistic movies in mm-hmm. different languages that people could see so they can know how to use them. We'd have gotcha. a workshop after how to use that particular movie right. evangelistically. And then uh, I had two kinds of counseling mm-hmm. setups. One was um, if you were in personal need, mm-hmm. and we used Scope Ministries out of Oklahoma City. They brought 30 counselors to Amsterdam for those two weeks. It was a 10-day conference. So you could get a, different people get appointments. Or if you had a, a ministry question, then I had different evangelists that had been doing it for a number of years yeah. set up so you could talk to one of those. Yeah. And, and what we did then was I'm brand new to event to Billy Graham. I don't know anybody, but I had the whole slate of Billy Graham to choose from. Mm-hmm. And so I hired three leads who had been at Billy Graham for a long time to mm-hmm. work for me yeah. during Amsterdam. So for yeah. six months they worked for me wow. and we did the conference and, um, and it was Billy, an amazing thing. Yeah. Billy, you, you and I have talked about Billy Graham. It was more than just. Like, obviously, it was bigger than Billy Graham. You mentioned at one point, and maybe this is later on in the story, that you worked with J.I. Packer's daughter. It's like it's bigger than, I mean, there's like J.I. Packer's huge, and there's a lot of great, great people involved in in these, in the Billy Graham organization. I mean, that was. Yeah, the ministries that Graham did is when you're a large organization Mm -hmm. uh, in any industry. Yeah. Um, everybody wants something from you, right. but you also have the means to be an umbrella for a lot of projects. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, who's who of Christianity was like, you never mm-hmm. know who you're going to see right. in the right. office visiting somebody or, or whatever. Yeah. Um, and, and one of the things that I learned about ministry working for Graham was just generosity. I mean, part yeah. of our policy was if you were with a pastor, the pastor paid nothing regardless of what you were doing. Yeah. And, and there was always this sense of generosity mm. and of taking care of the church. 
yeah. loving the church, right. loving the pastors and, and promoting what they were doing, right. not trying to sell what we were doing. Yeah. And one thing about the early on of the crusades, I never worked on the crusade side. I ended up on the training side mm -hmm. was, it was a facilitation of the mission of the church. Mm -hmm. It wasn't, Hey, look at us. Right. It was, we're looking at you. Which is, I think, one thing that made the... I think that's one of the reasons why people will be talking about the Billy Graham and what he did for... I mean, he's been dead for a couple of years now, but yeah. for a long time, because yeah. it's going to last through the local church. It's going to last through these different churches. I mean, and other, other evangelists have tried to do the other way of like, this is all about what we're doing. But I feel like when people, when people mention the word evangelist, the first thing that comes to their mind is Billy Graham. Yeah. I mean, that's, and I think it's because a lot for a lot of reasons, but one is that he was, he was so like you're saying tied, tied up with the local church and trying to provide for the local church. And, well, and, and, and he was involved. humble. Yeah. I remember the first time I met Billy, um, it was at a company picnic Mm -hmm. And he shows up in his, his jeans and, and uh, cotton blue jean shirt. And he takes my hand and puts his other hand on top of it, on top of just a normal handshake. Mm -hmm. And he says, and he had a guy standing there prompting him with everybody's name. Mm -hmm. He says, Michael, I am so glad that you work for us. Mm -hmm. And I was like flabbergasted. Mm -hmm. I'm like, Mr. Graham, he said, it's, it's the exact opposite yeah. I am honored to work for you. Yeah. But he meant it. Yeah. And I had the privilege later to be in his home for oh, three or four different occasions, taking wow. people up there or whatever. Yeah. And he was always gracious. He was always just himself. Mm -hmm. He always loved Jesus. I mean, he had Bibles lying around in his house mm -hmm. and he would stop and read a verse. He called it nibbling. <laughs> and mm -hmm. you know, when he got up in the morning, um, he had a saying, God's bread before my bread. Yeah. And he would read the passage of scripture before he would eat. Yeah. Um, and it was just a daily habit, right. you know, and he spent the time praying and he spent, um, he was never, even though his workplace was the limelight. Yeah. Um, he didn't seek the limelight. Mm -hmm. Well, I think what's, what's interesting too, is I, over my lifetime, I've seen a lot of these guys who are these huge names in Christianity fall. I mean, they'll, they'll have an affair or like the most recent big one was Robbie Zechariah, who you find out is doing all this stuff over his ministry. And yeah. like, I don't think that, I don't think we're going to hear anything like that about Billy Graham. It no. seems like, his stuff, he was just thorough. Like he was, there wasn't a two-faced Billy Graham. There wasn't a public Billy Graham and then a private Billy Graham. It seemed like Billy Graham was Billy Graham and nothing negative has come out about him. I mean, the worst that people could say about him was that he did the Billy Graham rule, which was a great thing. I mean, I, yeah, the worked. Modesto Manifesto was written because of, they were traveling a lot now. Yeah. And realized that they needed to be, Careful. Yeah. Right. That right. there were people, right. rumors of people who wanted to in the press catch him doing something wrong. Right. And um walked into um he had a real private role that he never entered a hotel room first. Mm. And so one of the staff would always go into a hotel room and he went to a hotel room and there's a flashbulb and there's a prostitute sitting on the bed 
um, partially undressed, waiting for him. And the guy's like, who are you? (laughs) You know, and they left. Wow. And so they wrote the Modesto Manifesto, setting out some guidelines so that they could avoid the appearance of evil. Mm Mm-hmm. And they wouldn't get caught in the entrapment right. of those who wanted to the take media. down his ministry. Yeah. And, and those rules were a pain. Mm-hmm. They really were. I mean, it was to the point where on our team, there were three of us that did ministries for other ministries and primarily. That, those rules didn't just apply to Billy Graham, right? Like no, you had to abide by those rules. They were corporate. Yeah. And... And so and then we had uh, five support people that served us, or, or three. Mm-hmm. And one of them, uh, Eva Green, was an amazing logistic, um, handled logistics, just yeah. amazing. Logistician. Yeah. yeah. And so she and I needed to fly to New York to meet the rest of the team. We were doing a project in New York City. Mm-hmm. So we had separate flights. Separate car store, separate hotels. Yeah. Across the street from each other, but that was the rule. Yeah. And, you know, we're going to be on a crowded airplane. We're right. going to be, but there was never right. any thought or hint of impropriety. Yeah. Right. There was a, a project that we were doing down in uh, British Virgin Islands that Billy Graham was doing. And we had a project called dare to be a Daniel is for a curriculum for middle school kids. Mm-hmm. And I had written the um, original one, but mm-hmm. then it had been revised and Chad had taken it and produced it. And they were going to do it down there for a, a kid's outreach. Mm-hmm. It was a 10 day trip. And there was a young gal from Canada going to go down and somebody else. Well, Chad's wife went into premature labor, so he couldn't go. So like three days before, I was familiar with the material. And so they're like, can you go and, mm-hmm. and run this? Cause they knew I'd been a children's pastor mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. So now it's me and this girl from Canada. Right. Right. And they're like, well, we can't do that. So Esther, who had a full-time job. Right. Yeah. But she also had an assistant. They said, Esther, can you go take your laptop and you can do your work down there. Yeah. So they paid for her yeah. to go all their food, flights, everything. Right. So that I was covered and wouldn't have time with this young girl from the Canadian office. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that was fine. Right. Well, people, people, I mean, it might've been a pain back then, but it, I feel like you, it worked like, like, especially coming up. I mean, they, they couldn't have predicted this, but coming up on like over the last 15, 20 years, yeah. some of the most over-sexualized like culture in American history. Yeah. And it's like, a lot of these guys are a lot of these major pastors and, and whatever uh, apologetics and stuff like that. They, they fall to these temptations, the sexual temptations and people got, I mean, I remember when Billy Graham died, I was that like 2017 or something. I was in high school, I think. And I watched it online <laughs> and then I, and then I, and then I'm reading on Twitter and people, and of course don't go to Twitter just when somebody dies, don't go to Twitter because those people, <laughs> people are horrible. But people were like, they were trashing him because they were saying he was a sexist and he didn't, he didn't like women. And it's like, yeah, well, one, no, he was not a sexist. He certainly did like women and he liked them enough to try to protect them from sexual sin as, as much as himself too. But like what he did worked. And I think that in an over-sexualized culture, anybody who's trying to not play into that 
uh, is is that's the bad guy. So yeah. Billy looked at Billy Graham as a bad guy, but at the end of the day, his ministry and the legacy that he leaves is going to last you know, we had hundreds women, of years. Yeah, I mean, women yeah. board members. We had a woman vice president. Um, women were very... Right, he had a wife. You yeah. know, if he hated women. But they were so very much. present in leadership at, yeah. at Graham. Right, right. And no, it wasn't sexist at all, yeah. but it, it was It was Christian safe. and biblical and yeah. Right, I mean, yeah. there was great respect. Yeah. And, and we just got used to living that way. Right. And it was, it was good. And it probably saved your guys' butt, you oh, know, or no, in ways that we, no we nobody will even know. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's crazy. So you, you worked for how long with Billy Graham and then up until. So I worked point? there twice as there the first time, um, six years and then. No, you're good. What's up? Um, just you know, you put back after you yeah. I was planning on that. Cool. No, you're good. Go ahead. So, yeah, we were there twice. Uh, the first time, um, six years, we moved to Minneapolis after Rolla, and they moved us to, they built a new facility, uh, new campus down in Charlotte. Mm -hmm. And so they moved the training center to the Cove, which is the Billy Graham Training Center in Asheville, about two hours north, yeah. um, west of Charlotte, and um, was on this training team that... Um, other ministries would ask us, predominantly international, mm -hmm. uh, would ask us to help them do something. And so one of us would fly in mm -hmm. and kind of do a survey, what you're doing, what you're trying to do. Yeah. Uh, come up with a ministry if we felt it was viable, mm -hmm. create a budget, get it approved, write a, a business plan, mm -hmm. go in and train mm -hmm. and uh, help them execute first time around, pull back to a consultant role. They execute yeah. second round and we would go off to the next one. Yeah. We did three of those a piece every year mm -hmm. for four years. And then nine 11 happened. Oh, and at nine 11, then we opened up the Billy Graham uh, prayer center in New York city. And, out of that, Franklin saw the need for people to understand crisis in a mm -hmm. Christian context. And how do we, how do we handle suffering and how do we yeah. speak to those who suffer? And, okay. um, then there were some devastating hurricanes that happened down in, um, Florida. Yeah. So he came to our team one day and he said, uh, I want chaplains in Florida. And we looked at him and he said, what's a chaplain? Yeah. And he goes, I want people to understand crisis to help people. I'll get working. Mm -hmm. And he left and we're just standing there looking at each other. Right. So that was like on a Tuesday. So <laughs> Jack Mundy and I got on an airplane the next morning and went to Florida mm -hmm. and we're standing there looking at all the devastation and interviewing some pastors and called scope ministries, which yeah. I had worked with in Amsterdam mm -hmm. out of Oklahoma city and said, Hey, can you send us uh, three chaplains? Well, what's that? Well, send us three counselors who understand grief trauma. Yeah. So they did. And we bought some blue shirts and had them embroidered with Billy Graham with this yeah. bad logo. Yeah. And we made up on the spot. <laughs> and Franklin flies in on Friday and he's, where's the chaplain? We introduced him to three of them. Yeah. <laughs> and there's the He didn't know they work for Scope yeah. <laughs> Ministries. And, and, um, so that was the beginning of what we eventually called the rapid response team. Wow. And well, then we had to train these people. So mm -hmm. the idea was to take uh, just Christians mm -hmm. and turned out the best ones that we could get were housewives. Yeah. Um, they didn't have an agenda. Housewives who loved Jesus, right. who were compassionate, yeah. understood 
trying kids and everything, yeah. train them and, and put them up. We took care of, we worked alongside Samaritan's Purse disaster teams. And while they were working with the houses and just some physical stuff, we were working with the homeowners who had just lost everything right. or lost people. Right. Well, to facilitate that, um, there's a group in Baltimore, Maryland called International Critical Incident Stress Foundation, ICISF. And they were the arm that trained first responders and military in the aftermath of crisis. Hmm. So the victims are taken care of pretty well. Yeah. But what about the survivors? What about people who witnessed the Mm -hmm. chaos? Mm -hmm. And so I became one of their instructors over this Mm -hmm. next year. And in the process, I found out that the, um, the doctor who was the lead of all this at, doc, at, James, at John Hopkins was a Christian. Hmm. So I went to him and I said, okay, here's the deal. I became an instructor because I work for Billy Graham and here's what we're wanting to do. Yeah. Can I have permission to take your material mm-hmm. and create a different curriculum. That's just a one day. His curriculum was like, you know, it was a four or five day training session. Um, very involved and it's still being used. Um, it'll be an eight hour seminar to help Christians understand what not to say and what to say in crisis, Mm -hmm. especially in hurricanes, tornadoes, those kinds of things. And this might be confusing for people my age who, we were like, you know, we, I was born and then 9-11 happened and then there was a crisis, the 20, 2008 crisis. And then you have the 2020, like our life has been crisis after crisis after crisis to COVID finally. But before 9-11, there was a good 20 year span of, of relatively peace. Peaceful. And, yeah. I and, mean, things and were great. weather patterns weren't as severe yeah. as, as they became. So the 9-11 was shocking for, I mean, it yeah. seems like it was shocking for everybody and, and this was a, and this is a good way for so for the next five years um I, I left for a year um right before 9-11 happened and then I, I got a call and said hey will you come back and open up a church division and and help us develop this this thing so I went back and for the next five years then uh every saturday for an average of 28 saturdays a, a year mm-hmm. um I did an eight-hour seminar somewhere in a major city in America uh, with six to 800 people. Wow. And But the training was to help prepare you to go in and talk to people who had lost everything. Yeah. To know what not to say. You know, we want to promise that everything's going to be okay. You don't know that. Right, right. Um, You know, but you do know some things. Mm -hmm. Uh, These people are in crisis. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm good enough with the gospel. If you're in crisis, mm-hmm. I can get you to confess Christ as your savior in 20 minutes. It's easy. Right. But two weeks later, when you're no longer in crisis, you're going to be mad at me for n- manipulating you. Right. Right. And yeah, yeah. I mean, that's an interesting thing. I don't think people talked about that enough, but I do think Christians do try to sometimes use those. It's twofold. Cause sometimes those are the mo- the lowest moments for some people are the times where they actually do get saved, but then yeah, they do need comforting. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously Jesus is the best comforter. Right. But you got to be in your right mind to to be able to make that decision. Yeah. Yeah. To use your emotional 
yeah. issues at the moment to yes. manipulate you into that right. typically ends up in anger, right. not right. in salvation. Yeah. And yeah. now you're mad at the church. You're yeah. mad at God. You're mad at us. And then it becomes 10 times harder for the next person exactly. who's trying to preach the gospel. And so there were people that, you know, pastors would come and were like, your goal is not to evangelize. Yeah. Is to care for people in Jesus name. Mm-hmm. And there were a number of people that we put on airplanes and sent them back home mm-hmm. because they, they just manipulated people. Yeah. And that's, that wasn't the cause. Right. You know, but it also said when done right, it, you know, we would point them to churches, local yeah. churches, and we worked with local churches to know which ones we could trust to send people to. Yeah. That would actually hear the gospel. Yeah. And we had all kinds of letters of people yeah. who eventually came to Christ yeah. three, five, six months later. Right. Um, but that's what started them on that path. Yeah. And that's the Billy Graham Foundation partnering with local so churches. It's the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. The, the Billy Graham Foundation is, is in Wheaton. Thing? And oh, that's really? a historical Am I the wrong thing. Um, the Billy Graham, what did you say, Evangelistic BGEA. Asso- B- yeah, the Billy BGEA. Graham Evangelistic Association. Well, what I love about the BGEA is <laughs> I do really love that they were partnering and connecting with local churches all over the country because I think. I think there's one of the things that I've struggled with is organize, Christian organizations that are kind of on their own, not really yeah. trying to connect to local churches. Cause I look at the new Testament and I'm like, it seems like this is where Paul is really trying to tell us we got to get into the local church and Billy Graham and what they were doing there. It seemed like they were trying to do the exact same thing. Like, Hey, this is how we're going to, we'll give you the gospel, but you, this is how you grow. You got to go to a local church. Yeah. And it was, I mean, I understand because Local churches are terrible to work with because what they're doing is not our priority. Yeah. We have Sunday next week Yeah, or at the end of this week, right. you know, and that's always the case. Right. And churches it's, aren't, they're not run by like the highest professionals in the world too. It's not like some, they're messy. Like you got one person running three different ministries and they're busy yeah. and pastors are, you know, their lives are all over the place. It's like trying to organize something with the local church can sometimes be demoralizing. Cause you're just like, <laughs> do these people even want help? And it's like, well, yeah, they do, but they're, they're also, and sometimes they don't. Right. Right. And I remember I was in Charleston and, uh, I had time in my schedule. I traveled about 200 days internationally the first five years. And then um, almost the same the next six years. Mm -hmm. uh, But it was usually Thursday through Sunday or Thursday through Monday. Mm -hmm. And I remember Franklin coming in and Franklin was just mad. And what he was mad about was for the first... I don't know, 40, 50 years, maybe not that long, of, um, of BGEA, people brought their friends who weren't Christians to the Crusades. Mm-hmm. And, and in the, when would it have been, starting in the 90s, but in the early 2000s, they stopped bringing their friends, mm-hmm. and they just came to a Christian event where there was going to be jars of clay or, or some music group yeah and in all of the music industry gave their time to be on a gram stage because yeah. that was a promotional thing yeah, for them totally. it was yeah. an honor for them right. and and franklin was like you know they've turned us into a glorified road show huh. we're not doing that anymore right. so that was the last crusade on american soil for a long time wow. And we shifted in that next year, we did something called Rock the River. Mm-hmm. And it was five 
concerts aimed at youth and college kids yeah. up the Mississippi River. What year was this? I don't know. Uh, Early 2000s? 2008. Oh, wow. Okay. And it's like we had, I remember um, it wasn't, it was out of my division, but um, I was home the weekend. So I flew to St. Louis mm -hmm. to go to that one and to help. Mm -hmm. And we had 60,000 kids under the arches wow. in the Arches State Park there. Yeah. Um, and had these big jumbotrons, yeah. just a full day of, you know, 20 minutes of a band and then band member giving the gospel or yeah. Franklin giving the gospel and then do it again. And, yeah. and, uh, there were so many kids, nobody could come forward. Yeah. And so it was all done on these screens and texting. Yeah. And everything was set up so they yeah. would text a number and they would get and then follow up all texting for several weeks, yeah. including directing to one of 60 different churches in the area. Wow. And then those churches, youth pastors also got the kids information to follow yeah. up with. And it was all done geographically. It was, it was pretty intensive. Did it, did it really work? Well. Like what, it did. It did. Okay. For a while. Yeah. And uh, so kids were going. So then they did a rock the lakes. Yeah. They did. Um, which was a Milwaukee one. Um, okay. They did several rock, rock the Rockies. And, and then they ran into the same thing. Yeah, and so they just went back international. Yeah. The church stopped being evangelistic. Yeah. Because culture changed so rapidly. The church mm -hmm. didn't know how to respond to it. Right. And, and the questions the changed. Of, you're saying around 2010, 28, yeah. 2008 through 2012 or whatever. And that's, yeah. That is, you can, when I think about through my childhood, that, that the 2008 election and the 2012 election were, were kind of, well, I can just edit that out. The, the 2008 and the 2012 election to me seemed like, um, the, the, some huge social issues were at, were at stake there. I mean, this is. Uh, like gay marriage was talked about and yeah. whether or not we were going to legalize gay marriage. And that was all downstream of what was happening culturally. And I don't know. Yeah. It didn't seem like Christians were even prepared for all of that. And then obviously from that came to where we're at today. And, and so, um, yeah, it was, uh, the church wasn't ready for it. And in about that time, seeker sensitive churches were the big thing. Yeah. And churches became so close and so much like culture that culture's like, why should I go and be What's, who you, yeah. you look like me. Right. The gospel wasn't, was no longer the forefront. Yeah. It was this sloppy gospel. Right. It was almost good works. Right. We love you. Right. Jesus loves you. Right. Um, sneak into the kingdom. Right. It, I mean, Nick gave a sermon the other week that I thought the way that he described this was really helpful. He talked about going into you go into these contemporary modern art museums and you see like a blank white canvas and it's like you have the, the art critics who are who are like you're supposed to feel all of these emotions inside and you look at it and you're like i don't feel anything <laughs> i can do this how did this sell for 12 million dollars yeah. and and that she said, make like, it whatever you want it to be. Right, you can make it whatever you want it to be. Yeah, like, what do you feel? It's like the art's interpreting you. You don't interpret it. And so, and, and then Nick's point was like, that's kind of what it, it it's like to say to tell people God loves you in some way. Because it's like, what does that mean? There, there has to be some deeper meaning to that, yeah. you know. Because you have to kind of define your terms in some ways. And and it does feel like the message that I got 
growing up was God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. God loves you. And I was like, well, I don't know. This love seems shallow. Like, I don't know what this means. Just and like, so what? Yeah. So what? Yeah. So does like, so do my parents, but they, they piss me off, you know, like, yeah. I, and so, so I was fortunate in, and I look back, I'm 66 now and, um, my dad's still alive, but Estel's folks are both gone and my mom's gone. Yeah. And I just realize what a legacy hmm. I was born into. Right. And in the legacy, honestly, was the gospel, but the working out of the gospel in the local church. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my friends, their parents were all married. Mm -hmm. Nobody was divorced. Yeah. Um, they were happy. They still go home to see their parents. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a, a great way to live mm -hmm. and a very non-anxious way to live mm -hmm. because we saw God work mm. yeah. and right. I understood joy. Yeah. My grandfather preached about heaven probably every six weeks. <laughs> I mean, he'd get going on heaven and he'd get so happy he'd cry, you know, because yeah. he had a hope. Yeah. And there was nothing in life that was greater than that hope. Mm. And I was raised on that. Yeah. And so, you know, as, as Nicole says, yeah, you got a cheerleader in your head. Yeah, right. I do. Right. And I have hope in Christ. Right. And and even if it seems unreasonable, it's like, well, it's unreasonable to you. You know, it's yeah, not, it's the joy set before you, exactly. not at the moment. Right. right. The moment may, you know, people are like, well, you know, you live in pain since you were 28. Yeah. Yeah. We live in a fallen world. Our right. bodies break down. What does that have to do with how I'm doing? Right. I'm doing great. Right. I hurt. Yeah. But I'm doing great. Yeah, right. You know? Which I've is got... the Christian life I'm hurting, but I'm doing great. Like, in in the sense that, yeah, what you're doing great because there's the hope that you can look forward to. Being and glorified. I'm at peace. Yeah. And, I'm yeah. not anxious. Right. Um, yeah. Been married for 45 years. Yeah. You had a great wife. Yeah. She loves me. She puts up with me. She's yeah. a strong lady. She's yeah. a brave lady. Yeah. You know? And, and I know that... No, it's Jesus isn't an easy answer sometimes. Yeah. Right. But he's faithful. Right. You know, and he's often faithful in the context of the local church. Yeah. And I feel sorry for people who show up once in a while because they're missing out on the full meal deal. Yeah. Right. You know, and yeah, you don't get a, I mean, it's a family. I mean, it is. It's a family. And if you only show up, I mean, like families, I know this is how Americans do it now, but like, if you only show up for Easter and Christmas, you don't really know anybody. Right. You, family is every week having dinner together and hanging out and, yeah. and going to stuff together and hanging out. And I think like a lot of people have gotten used to, to just going to Christmas with their family. And then that's what this turned into their relationship with the church. It's like, I can just do that twice a week or, or twice a month. And then I don't, or twice a year. And I don't have to deal with the people and all like, so no, the people, that is what the church is like, and yeah. you, you're gonna have to deal with people at some point. You might you know, as well Nick do it preaches for a lot about worldliness. Yeah, and one of the antidotes to worldliness is this family. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, I don't need the stuff of the world to be happy. Mm -hmm. I need people. Yeah, right. And I need to get to, along with people. Right. And no, I don't get to choose my family, but I do love them. Yeah. And I can't enjoy them. Right. And yeah, sometimes they're work. Yeah. But 
they're also a blessing. And, and sometimes natural family doesn't always work or they're not always available. Mm-hmm. But, you know, for us at High Point here, we got a thousand people that we can call family right. and do stuff with. Right. And what ends up with is usually non-anxious fun. Right. right. You know, or caring about each other. Right. And it's, it's good. Right. You know, and I'm incredibly grateful that that's my heritage. Yeah. Yeah. And can, can I ask? Yeah, I think some people who listen to this podcast regularly, maybe not from Madison, know Nick. You work with Nick. Nick came to High Point 13 years ago. High Point was in a really bad place in 2010 ish uh, and maybe going to go bankrupt. We didn't know what was going to happen here. Uh, where did you when did you come into the picture there and how did you and Nick meet? And I'll have been here eight years in August. OK. And um, at one of those seminars I was teaching, mm-hmm. uh, Nick got drugged too. <laughs> he had been here for about three months. Yeah. And um, Jean Collins had been to the Cove, had been to the training. Okay. And she told Nick, you need to go to this. It's yeah. really good. Jean Collins worked at High Point. Right? And so I think I was, I know I, I taught in Madison and Milwaukee. Okay. Um, I think it was in Madison, but not positive. Um, she brought him. Mm-hmm. And he came up at noon and he said, uh, like your material, like your presentation and everything, but that's not what I want to talk about. Mm-hmm. I really like the way you talk about the church. Mm-hmm. And he said, I'm a, I'm a new pastor, been a youth pastor in Florida, got this broken church in Madison, been here three months. Can we talk? Mm-hmm. And that became a conversation over the next seven years. Mm-hmm. Well, he was pastoring here. I came out a few times. They did some things. They preached a couple times. The Connect, Grow, Serve thing came yeah. out of a sermon. Um, did elder training once, leadership training. Nick came out to Colorado, mm-hmm. uh, sat on our front porch overlooking the Colorado River for a week and read and slept and mm-hmm. prayed. Came out the next time to go elk hunting. He yeah. still does that with some of the guys out yeah. there. And um, when it was time to leave, I knew it was time to leave there. And I wanted to get back to a city because it was another small town. I felt like I had accomplished what God brought me there to do. And he had accomplished in me what, mm-hmm. and that's a whole other story. It's kind of a fun one. Mm-hmm. But um, so it was, I was going to resign. He said, well, come here. And I was like, I'll talk to your elders. And so he did. And we did. Yeah. Um, and that was almost eight years ago. Yeah. Wow. That's, Yeah. Right. It's, it's crazy to think, uh, see all the different stories kind of come together. I mean, like when I think about how I came back to high point, Nick getting to high point, you getting to high point, all these, it's just really interesting and really cool. It seems like your, your testimony. Well, and for a lot of people like you and I who have a, maybe a more dominant personality, maybe more arrogant, just by nature, (laughs) just, we think we're better at everything. And that God it seems like your testimony is like time after time after time, God has had to remind you that he was working things through you, that you weren't working things through yourself. Yeah. And that, and that's, and I've that's had powerful. to learn that, you know, there's a real fine line between arrogance and confidence. Yeah. And arrogance is when my confidence is in me. Yeah. True confidence is when my confidence is in the Lord. Yeah. Mm. And I get more done that way. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and my confidence is in the Lord and I wait to see what he's doing mm-hmm. and then come alongside that. Mm-hmm. 
it's it's not stressful right it's you can accomplish something like i've been doing the bible study at the uh, capitol every wednesday morning now for going on seven years and it's just become a delight to and not be stressed with those guys and and, uh you know we saw a legislator come to christ we we've seen several of them grow quite a bit in their faith and it's been it's been fun. Yeah. It's been enjoyable to work in that environment. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, Mike, um, thanks for sharing your testimony. I think people will really like this and this will be, I mean, it's, uh, as I listen through, sometimes I listen through people who have different personality types to me and I'm like, yeah, that's, that's great. But somebody who has a similar personality type to me, I, I feel like I can take more away from their, their testimony and, and learn from it. Cause the reason why I think we do these testimonies is so that people can listen and in some ways just don't make the same mistakes. <laughs> like I don't want to make the same mistakes that you made. I yeah. want you to make those mistakes so that I don't have to make those <laughs> mistakes and then I can do better for the next person. And I think these types of stories are just the stories of how the gospel has transformed people, especially on this podcast where we talk very conceptually, we talk about theology and philosophy and yet those things don't really mean anything if they're not impacting your heart and changing right. your heart and right. and bringing you closer to Christ. And these, the testimony stories really can, can do that for people. I, I want to say one more thing. Yeah. I don't deserve to be most of the places I've been. Yeah. And following me, Jesus has been an amazing adventure. Mm-hmm. And Nick preached a sermon at Christmas time and Advent first sermon, you know, uh, angel Gabriel came to Zacharias and, and he started questioning him. Yeah. So Zacharias just shut him up. Couldn't talk for a while. Yeah. All right. He goes to, to Mary and tells her this incredible thing that's going to happen to her. Yeah. And she says, okay. Right. And. Incredible and unbelievable. Like, yeah. Not logical in a lot of ways. Right. You know? But she trusted God. Yeah. And. Right. And it undoubtedly took me, you know several decades to get to that point. Mm. But it's really good mm-hmm. to trust God. Yeah. And to recognize that he is sovereign. Yeah. Because he loves us and he's a good father. Mm-hmm. Those work in our favor. Right. Doesn't mean it's necessarily easy, but it's good. Mm. And yeah. I'm gonna be okay. Right. Right. Because he is good. Yeah. Before we wrap up, do you want to, I guess, pray for, for people that are listening? Yeah. And um, close Father, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you sent Christ to die for us. And, and we have this beautiful story that we call the gospel. Um, but more than that, I thank you that it's livable. And as we take your truth, um, Paul terms it as we, we work out our salvation And that doesn't mean it's works. It means we learn to live in our salvation. We learn what it means to have um, your presence in our life, to be full of the Holy Spirit, to be able to function in a world that's absolutely crazy and going so many directions that we would think are wrong and be at peace and do good and and not fear, um, to take risk and to know that your presence is there to guide us and to help us accomplish the path you've set us on to do good works. Um, 
So I just pray for whoever's listening to this that they would be encouraged to, one, know you, two, to see their local church as, as your gift to them as a family and to recognize that, yep, it's made up of a whole bunch of crazy people like us, but it's good. It's a good family, and, and we can trust you, your presence in it to be good for us and to avail themselves into relationships, to give themselves to others in relationship, and to learn to enjoy one another in you. And, and three, just to recognize that you're a good father. You love us, and uh, we can trust you with our lives. In your name, amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Andy. Yeah, thanks for coming on. If you like this podcast, make sure you like, subscribe, share this with your friends, give us a five-star rating, and we'll see you guys in the next one. Goodbye. Goodbye.